0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. This is On the Environment, a podcast by the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Ivana Andrade, a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, we're in the studio with Tequila Chungyalpa. Dikila is currently the 2014 McCluskey Fellow in Conservation here at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. She grew up in a devoutly Buddhist family in the forests of Sikkim, a formerly independent kingdom, now part of India. Moved by the emergence of hydropower dams at home, she began studying environmental issues. Her early years as an activist led her to work as a field conservationist for the World Wildlife Fund in the Eastern Himalayan Program and the Mekong region, and eventually, in 2011, to launch the Sacred Earth Program, a pilot program to encourage faith-based environmental stewardship around the world, and it's gaining attention. Dekila, it's wonderful to have you in the studio. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us a little bit about the Sacred Earth Program. What has it accomplished since its inception, and where do you see it going?
1: Um, So the program actually was I have to say it was an organic growth it wasn't something that we set out to create you know thinking about faith-based environmental stewardship but something that emerged from a side project i'd done in the eastern himalayas with um tibetan buddhist leaders and um initially um i thought i was just going to create something called environmental guidelines Um, for Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and the idea was you know it would be a two-week project I would help write this with um, a bunch of senior monks and then I'd be done but their response was so incredibly um, strong and they were so thirsty for the science knowledge that um, I was sharing with them that it kind of created this this Slow awakening in me that this was this was an area that we hadn 't actually we as the I, I mean the conservation community hadn 't really tapped into, which was all the religious leaders um, that you know are the backbone of of our societies and every culture and that we hadn 't tried to bring them to our side in a in a cohesive way um, in the past i 'd seen several field projects where we had reached out to faith leaders. Um, as part of you know capacity building or stakeholder um, participation, but it, it was never a concerted effort across the board and so when uh, we launched Sacred Earth with WWF, the idea was that we were going to work um, together on on jointly designed environmental goals um, between the religious leaders that we we had um, identified and WWF. Um, and in each of the places that I ended up working in, the goals were quite different. So um, the Sacred Earth Program basically worked in the eastern Himalayas, in the Mekong region, in East Africa, in the Amazon, and the U.S. And in each of these places, um, we ended up working with a different set of um, religious leaders, often from different religions, and um, and on different goals. So in in the Eastern Himalayas, you know, at this point, we have over 55 Buddhist monasteries that are carrying out environmental projects as part of their own monastic goals. Um, and the projects are very varied. Um, so we have everything from solar energy to organic gardening, you know, reforestation of indigenous plants and saplings. Um, and so... In in the Eastern Himalayas, it's, it's a very broad based um, capacity building program. In the Mekong, it was much more targeted. We actually focused on wildlife trade um, and wildlife protection. And in Thailand, the focus was very much on African elephants because Thailand is a is basically a major loophole as a as a market for ivory. Um, it it you know because it has a domestic legal domestic ivory market. It means that it allows African ivory to come in and get relabeled as domestic legal ivory. Of course, African ivory is is illegal. and so because Thailand can, you know, it's, it's possible for that to happen in Thailand, Thailand becomes the loophole for a lot of illegal wildlife trade. Um, and so we, WWF and other conservation NGOs, have been trying very hard to, to change this law in Thailand to close down all ivory markets. Um, uh, and so part of the sacred earth work in Thailand was to actually bring religious leaders to our side. And we approached some of the most senior Buddhist leaders that we could. And it was amazing. They all said yes. Um, they were extremely shocked to find out that actually um, Thai Buddhism, in some sense, was was um, endorsing the use of African ivory because so many Thai Buddhists were buying um, uh, you know, Buddha amulets and prayer beads and so on made of ivory. And so the message that went out from these religious leaders was very strong and the much, much stronger than we had imagined or anticipated. And so the messages, you know, were very clear to say that if you were a Buddhist, you should not be in any way involved in buying or selling ivory, period. Um, and they applied quite a bit of pressure on the government, actually, because, you know, Thailand, um, as you know, is 98%, 96% Buddhist. And so for the Buddhist leaders to actually put pressure on the government, it's quite quite significant and unprecedented. Um, and so at the CITES event, um, Last year, the 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 then Prime Minister Shinawatra ended up announcing that um, Thailand would close its domestic ivory, and the um, the legislation is going forward. So it it was a major win, um, and I think it was one of the probably one of the best examples we have to show that working with faith leaders actually makes a, a really huge difference, and it and it moves the needle in conservation. Um, in East Africa, we also focused on African ivory. Um, as you can imagine, you know, it, it wasn't enough that we just addressed the domestic side; we really wanted to address the the supply side as well for African ivory. Um, and in the discussions I was in on sustainable development with different faith leaders, as part of a program that was um, created by the Alliance of Religions and Conservation. Um, <laughs> I met with several uh religious leaders in Africa who said they'd actually never seen, you know, uh an elephant in the wild, which was quite shocking to me because of course you assume that um this is this is a normal thing, right? That people see a lot of wildlife in their own native countries. Um and so we had this kind of brainchild that we should take as many African religious leaders who were interested in wildlife as we could on a safari, which we did, and it was really fun. <laughs> but um, I think what came out of that was this very personal commitment from many of the religious leaders. So forty 50 religious leaders actually signed um, agreements to say that their institution, the institution they were representing, would not be part of illegal wildlife trade but would also fight it um and you know africa is one of the most religious places in the world um 9 out of 10 africans identify themselves as very religious so um having that happen um has meant a lot i think for conservation groups in africa um local conservation groups as well as international conservation groups to to see, I think, that religious leaders are a really good ambassador for environmental messages, for wildlife conservation messages. Um, I think uh, one of the the outcomes of the Sacred Earth program has been a really simple one, which is to get conservation NGOs to see that um, religious leaders are actually active on environmental issues. Um, In the U.S., of course, Religious leaders have been, you know, working on climate change for two decades. I think the problem is that we actually have not known about it and that we have been working parallel to them and never seeing that our paths could possibly intersect. Um, In the Amazon, it was really wonderful to work with the Catholic Church and the Archdiocese of Rio. Um, We had a really great um, interaction with the Vatican representatives, Because the Pope, at that time, the new Pope, Latin American Pope, was coming to Latin America for the first time and coming to Brazil for World Youth Day, which is, I think, the biggest pilgrimage in the world. Um, And so they were were expecting millions of young Catholics to come for this event, one-week event. Um, And the Pope would speak to them directly every day. So we created... uh, Amazon conservation material so um, in the form of videos so we basically showed five videos several times a day to three and uh, 3.5 million young Catholics before and after the Pope spoke and you know we were also um, able to help open doors for indigenous leaders who were there um, to approach the Pope to ask for the protection of indigenous lands. Um, and ask the Pope for his blessing, but also for the Catholic Church to actually take this on as an issue. And this was quite, um, I would say, not very publicized, but the Pope has been very active on that. He um, had a private meeting with the bishops in um, in Latin America, basically saying that this should be a priority for the Catholic Church in Latin America, um, and the bishops should come up with a plan um, for the Catholic Church to decide how um, they will protect Indigenous peoples' rights and Indigenous lands in the Amazon region, um, again, that's unprecedented. You know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't in any way say that WWF Sacred Earth or WWF Amazon program are responsible for that. But I think, I think being part of um, A movement such as that has been really empowering for our field staff, um, for conservation groups in general, um, and for people like me who are really trying to bridge these two worlds.
0: Thank you. What a mentality-changing idea, I think, for a lot of conservationists, uh, especially academic um, folks who are steeped in academia and science, that enlisting religious and faith-based leaders around the world could be such a powerful thing. Could you please tell us about an experience that you had that inspired you to start the Sacred Earth Pilot Program? Well, the
1: Sacred Earth Program started organically. Um, it started with, uh, with an experience I had more at a personal level. Um, I come from a Tibetan Buddhist family, uh, very religious family. And uh, I, I was asked to have a meeting with His Holiness the Karmapa, uh, who is um, the head of my lineage. Uh, it's uh, The lineage is called Karmakagyu. Um, and he is uh, quite young. At this point he's 30, but when I met him he was 25. Um, and he is a very prominent environmentalist um, and quite a, I would say, um, a groundbreaker in his own way. You know, he's reforming Tibetan Buddhism in a way that most of us have never seen um, in this generation. You know, he's very active on women's issues, for example. Um, Very, you know, comes across as a very strong feminist. Um, And he had asked for a meeting where I could present the latest data on biodiversity loss in the Himalayas. And he wanted to know what was going on. and in that meeting, the conversation actually became more about um, general environmental issues and then what he ended up saying was that he had a vision for Buddhist monasteries his the monks and nuns that you know are in his order um, and that he had a vision for them because he wanted them to become basically um, problem solvers in their communities on environmental issues and he was quite adamant that they should get off their meditation mats and that they should join um, their communities and, you know, sort of leave the mountains and the monasteries and come down to where the people actually live. Um, And he felt that especially on issues such as freshwater conservation, climate change, that actually having the monks and nuns know what the issue was, understand the problem, and create solutions with the communities meant that the communities would be better protected. And when he asked me if I thought it was feasible, it was quite easy for me to say, yes, of course. And so then his next question was, will you help me do it? And, you know, I didn't really pause. I said yes, because, you know, that's great karma for me. (laughs) Um, But then I imagined that it would just be a few weeks of work, you know, that I would kind of work with monks and nuns to create some sort of guidelines um, and it ended up being a small booklet which now has been translated into 15 languages. Um, By the time that's that's all I could envision is something as simple as that but the work I began doing with the monks and nuns which was over a two to three week period ended up being so satisfying for me as a field conservationist and um, really um kind of made me rethink conservation at at the deepest level. You know, I'd, I'd always been a field conservationist at heart and um, worked at the community-based level and then went on to work on regional climate change and hy- hydropower issues. And um, it had never occurred to me before, even as a devout Buddhist, that I could work with religious leaders and that they might be the missing piece for conservation. Um, and that was the moment, it was a long moment, it didn't happen instantly, where I, it dawned on me that this was actually a perfect alliance, that this, this was a perfect partnership, um, because there is no one more qualified to talk about moral issues, to talk about, you know, ethical issues, to reframe environmental protection in ways that most people understand, Um you know, I think most of us who are in the science world really want to ignore that, you know, um, over 85% of people around the world are religious. I think it's very easy for us to distance ourselves from that. Um, and I think most um, science-based people are so concerned about religion infringing on knowledge and, and um, uh, threatening science-based knowledge or facts as we see it that we don't want to have anything to do with religion and this has been actually in many ways our achilles heel because um, religious leaders are able to talk to their followers in a way that we never can and people listen to religious leaders in a way that they never listen to scientists or policymakers or governments um so so this process was um really, um, it, it made me a revolutionary in a way, um, because I went back to my normal job with WWF and started really lobbying for us to work more with religious leaders. Um, WWF was wonderful. They actually said they were interested in this in this experiment. Um, and so I began working with these Tibetan Buddhist monks and nuns, and we agreed that we should do a Conference to basically give them the basic science of environmental issues, um, and that first conference sent twenty-two monastic representatives. And by the end of the conference, the representatives um, decided to create an association, which is now called Koryug, which means uh, environment in Tibetan. And uh, they went to his holiness, and they basically said, um, "We want this to be an environmental." organization that any Buddhist monastery or center can join but the but the goal of the the association or the organization um, is to really make Buddhists aware and active on environmental issues in the Himalayas I'd never seen anything like it you know I'd, I'd never even thought that um, Buddhist leaders would care that deeply about this issue because so much of Buddhism is about, you know, emptiness <laughs> and compassion or wisdom in very, very um, sort of uh, esoteric terms, really. Um, so what came out of that was a very practical um, set of activities that these monasteries chose to do, you know, reforestation and and uh, cleanups, river cleanups, uh, you know investment in solar from their own budgets from the monastic budgets um and so that i think was the was this little fire that just kind of kept building and uh the more i began working with them i started getting um requests and queries from other religious leaders so in the mekong region which is where i i was working um I, I had a lot of Buddhist leaders sort of ask me, ask for meetings, ask me, well, what are you doing in in the Himalayas with Buddhist leaders on environmental issues? We really want to know what's coming out of that. Um, so it was a it was a slow growing fire, um, and I I don't think we created the movement in any way. You know, I I can see looking back that it was sort of a big wake-up call for conservation groups, but that this is actually something that's been ongoing for a long time um, and that we're, we're the latecomers to the party. Uh, but I think the experiment has been very successful, and um, I'm grateful that it's been so successful because it's laid to rest a lot of doubts that some of my fellow conservationists had.
0: That's great. Thank you. At the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, we like to talk a lot about how to change markets and how to implement conservation projects, um, and how to measure so-called ecosystem services. Reflecting for a moment on the body of your work and some of the deeper meanings of your work over the last few years, can you elaborate on what other types of transformation you think that we need uh, to confront some of our ecological crises that are already happening and will continue to happen. Sure. Um, a few weeks ago, you know, I was
1: um, in the audience when Gus Spett spoke. Um, and of course, he's incredibly famous as a conservation leader. Um, but he's also got 40, 50 years of experience um, creating NGOs um, and leading major environmental initiatives as well as being the ex-dean of, of FES at Yale University. Um, the thing he said that really struck me was that when he finally came to Yale and he looked back at his 40 odd years, um, which included creating some of the best known NGOs today, um, that he felt that you know the conservation movement had in a way missed the boat. And what he talked about was consumerism. That at the end of the day, this is the biggest problem we have. If you look at environmental problems, almost everything sort of comes right back to the fact that, you know, we humans are just consuming everything, all natural resources. And um, WWF created something called Overshoot Day, um, which is basically the day um, in the annual calendar where... Humans, you know, where we surpass the the natural ability for the earth to generate itself, and we surpass um, our usage of natural resources. And typically, um, I think at some point, you know, it must have happened around November, December, but these days it's happening um, August, September. That's how quickly we're using up natural resources. And so these two things were, have been on my mind quite a lot as I'm working um, with Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm, who created the Forum of Religion and Ecology, because the conversation that's almost always missing um, in the conservation movement is the conversation about values and is the conversation about um, ethics. Um, I think it's something we're uncomfortable to deal with. Um, it's it's intangible first of all it's immeasurable which means uh, most of us who've been trained uh, in science are uncomfortable with that with that area um but I think secondly it's because we are forced to reposition our own um, paradigm when we talk about ethics and and values we suddenly move away from a from a paradigm that's, that's in many ways as, um, you know, uh, exploitative, <laughs> um, as the cap, as capitalism, you know, because in so many ways, when you look at how conservation NGOs talk about, um, their environmental goals, it really, it does boil down to a very cap pro capitalism view, um, at the same time, what's happening if, at the individual level and definitely at the faith-based environmental movement level is that most people who are, you know, talking about environmental protection are doing it on um, on the basis of their personal values and their personal um, morals or their ethics. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think w- because we've been pursuing such a quantitative way of doing conservation, sort of only wanting to look at big numbers and thinking about impact only in terms at at this mass scale, we've kind of missed that conversation. We've we've missed that um, individual values conversation. Um, It's either something we assume happens um, or has happened when we're talking to our audience, or it's something that we don't want to touch because we worry that it um, is true in too intrusive we would rather apply i think in many ways marketing you know uh, marketing strategies or communication tools um, to to thinking that this is what will change people's minds um I think the danger of that is we often end up talking to ourselves and we end up talking to an audience that we already have basically on our side. Um, and we don't end up talking to the people who are motivated by different, different perspectives than ours, you know, which is they are not motivated by um, data. They are not motivated by what we think of as logic or rational arguments. Um, but they are motivated by... Um, an individual moral appeal from somebody they trust. Um, And I think working, you know, with the form of religion and ecology at Yale has been very validating because um, this is something that, this is what they've been doing for the last two, three decades. Um, I'm not satisfied at the thought that we only work with religious leaders. I, I think they definitely play a big role um, in, in creating, you know, putting this conversation on the table, the moral conversation, the ethical conversation. Um, but that is one big role. There have to be other roles. I think it makes sense for us to work with companies and corporations that, you know, are changing people's behavior just from their marketing appeal, right? Um, and WWF and other conservation NGOs have shown that market-based initiatives, um, can work. Um, but I, I am concerned if that's the only strategy we as the conservation community are investing in. Um, it, it also worries me if we only see the value of nature in economic terms. I And I find it strange when this conversation happens often, because that's all people end up putting on in papers, you know, or in terms of money, you know, investing in a project activity or project strategy. And yet, if you talk to any one of us, a conservation scientists, conservation field practitioners, academics, actually, the thing that made us environmentalist was never an economic reason, was not a quantitative reason. It really was that we ourselves emotionally were drawn, compelled, to work on this issue. And so there's a real disconnect happening in our own community, which is that we are removing ourselves from the sphere of emotion. And what does that say about ourselves? It really, you know, every time I had this conversation with my colleagues, it would end up being a really uncomfortable one because people were so disassociated from that, that world of um, emotional appeal, (laughs) you know, they always wanted to come back to the data and the facts and, and the quantitative information that we have at the table. And, um, in a way, I do see that as a very patriarchal kind of approach, right? Um, it's almost that as female pra- uh, conservation practitioners, too, um, I feel that we're often forced to play that role because we so badly um, want to be taken seriously and want to be seen as legitimate professionals in this field. Um, and I, I can tell you, I mean, in my own experience, that I definitely got trained to remove emotion out of, out of um, my own sphere, Of functioning as a as a field conservationist, Um, and that is a very sad thing. That this is how we are being trained. Um, It's really disempowering, and it means that we put everybody else in a distance. So anybody else, which is basically most of the world, (laughs) um, ends up being something that we study and we see as a target audience or. A target population but we also see them as a problem we don't see them as allies because again we, our paradigm has shifted so greatly um and we've ended up being you know the 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 expert we've ended up already putting ourselves on a different level terrorist, you know the world and put ourselves on top of the mountain and that is a real shame
0: Tequila, can you please tell us for a moment what is next for you? What's next for this project and this pilot program? Sure. Um, uh, so, you know, for the
1: last five years, we actually started this program um, in 2009, but then officially launched it in 2011. Um, for the last five years, I've actually been running, and, you know, because and running after the program because religious leaders would just pick it up and just loved it so much and just sprint with it and then um, would turn to me for capacity building. And it's hard to say no to a religious leader. So I just, the program kept expanding without much thought into it. And um, in a way, in a very organic way that I trust, but also um, created problems, you know, for example, taking the time to to assess the data and the the information that was coming out of each of these projects. So I'm very grateful to be at Yale because this gives me a year to, to look at what worked and what didn't, um, and to work with uh, Mary Evelyn and John because Mary Evelyn, of course, um, especially, is the leading academic on faith-based conservation um, around the world, I'd say. Um, and so, to take this year out to redesign what Sacred Earth looks like, basically create phase two um and one of the things we're looking at is uh what happens when universities get involved in this in this type of initiative um and maybe universities end up um being capacity builders for religious leaders, not just studying them but also um um, providing very practical kind of know-how you know to engagement of student bodies as well as faculty um, and what that alliance would look like to have NGOs uh, universities and faith leaders um, on environmental issues so that's what I'm really excited about very passionate about right now um, and working on for this year
0: as one as one final question uh, what On a personal level, what types of behavior change have you observed as an outgrowth of your work, whether it's with friends or family or particular community members you've worked with?
1: Um, In terms of behavior change, I think one of the things I'm most excited about, and I actually have been appealing um, to faculty and students at Yale quite a bit to work with me on, is that um, I see that faith-based, Behavior change has a different type of impact um, than typically, I think typical sort of environmental programs um, or or you know appeals that we have for for um, uh, uh, sorry changes in attitude or behavior, um, and that seems to be that it's um, got a very natural um, ripple effect. Um, it's almost as though. I'm appealing, you know, by working with religious leaders. I appeal to them initially, but then what I see is that they have an army of volunteers that pick that message up, and then just sort of, you know, it just keeps growing. It ends up being its own movement, um, and that initial appeal is such a minimum input, and the 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 go the in the sort of ripple effect that just kind of moves on is such a maximum output, right, um, and. What I see is that it happened in different cultures. It happened in um, different contexts, different religions. And yet it was exactly the same movement, um, this kind of growing uh, group of volunteers, and each one of them would go out and recruit another set of volunteers. Of course, this this came out of the understanding um, from what I was seeing in the Himalayas, you know, um I know I mentioned' his own as the Karmapa his name is Ugin Tinle dorji and when he initially picked up this issue i think at most i imagined that the institutions that were under him would change that the monasteries themselves would change their behavior and it's true that you know a huge number of monasteries 55 monasteries took up environmental goals and activities and they've been they've been um implementing them under his auspices but the the part that i didn't count for was that he himself would appeal to his following and he has a very large following um in you know around the world uh in america in europe latin america um in fact one of the fastest growing buddhist following in mexico <laughs> you know um and interestingly in among chinese followers as well in hong kong taiwan and mainland china and what I didn't anticipate was how strong he would be with this message, because he basically um ended up talking about consumerism almost all the time to these audiences and telling them that as Buddhists it didn't make sense for them to be so invested in uh, you know, in uh this material uh a totally material sense of what success is or development is. And he's asked each of his followers to question what they mean by personal success. Now, as you know, one of the biggest problems that the environmental movement is facing is how do you how do you question the right of developing countries um, to follow the model that developed countries have in terms of, you know, whether it's in terms of um, a fossil fuel-based development um Model or whether it is at the individual level of the very high end, um, high value sort of um, consumerism, right? And so to have a religious leader make that appeal and then to see the ripple effect, um, it was it's been incredible. I've had um, a lot of people come up to me at an individual level, um, you know, including a millionaire, a Chinese millionaire, um, to say that they've simplified their lives, that they've um, f- talk to their families about what they buy and, you know, not wanting to own more than one car and worrying about their carbon footprint. And, um, there was a group of, uh, his followers um, from Australia who decided that they would offset their carbon footprint to fly to India to meet with him. And they wanted to do this partly because they were meeting with him and they were afraid. You know, they wanted to be able to say, hey, look what we've done. We're listening to you. But they said they were partly doing this because they thought it made them better Buddhists. And that was something I hadn't anticipated, that this type of behavior change makes people feel really good. They end up feeling that they are better religious people for it. So it's such a win-win, right? And it also means that this type of behavior change is more sustainable because they, um, they feel good about it. They get a type of euphoria from changing their behavior. But also it's constantly reinforced by the community they trust the most and rely on the most, which is their religious community.
0: What a valuable and incredibly powerful perspective you have. And these stories are just so impactful. Thank you so much. That wraps up our podcast for today. If you're interested, you can find out more about Tequila's work at the Sacred Earth Faiths for Conservation Initiative webpage at the WWF's website. Thank you, Tequila, for talking with us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank
1: you for having me. I really enjoyed being here.